Escaped Sapiens. Imagine if we could bring back species from extinction. In this episode of the Escaped Sapiens podcast, I speak with Ben Novak, who is a lead scientist working for Revive and Restore, a leading wildlife conservation organization using advanced biotechnologies to save species that are threatened and to bring back genetic diversity that has already been lost. We discuss the work being done today to bring back extinct species, from the thylacine to the mammoth to Ben's main focus, the passenger pigeon. Ben explains the science behind de-extinction in clear and fantastic detail. I hope you enjoy hearing what he has to say. So look, I um, it, you're a, a lead scientist on a topic or, or an area that I, at least personally, think is about as cool as you can get. Um, and, and so I thought maybe a good thing to start with would be just a, a brief description or, or you know, what, what is de-extinction? Yeah. Um, so, like, as you said, yes, I'm, I'm lead scientist with uh, Revive and Restore, a nonprofit uh, organization that is the leading nonprofit organization uh, promoting the innovation and adoption of biotechnologies and conservation. And where we got our start was with de-extinction, which we view as kind of the moonshot of biotechnology uh, applications for wildlife, where the idea is we've gotten to a point in time where we have all of the technologies coming together um, to be able to actually take the idea of bringing a species back from extinction out of science fiction and into reality. And it, it, you know, it's not going to play out like a lot of people have in their minds, like when they, you know, they remember growing up seeing Jurassic Park or or you know all kinds of science fiction stories where it's like we're not actually reaching into the past and grabbing woolly mammoths or passenger pigeons and bringing them into the present it's a it's far more it's far more intricate and and to me it's far more interesting what we're doing um but yeah so that started in 2012 when i was brought on to lead that project and that's what i'm i'm most known for um but the uh you know without getting ahead of us in the questions the uh all the technology i you know that i'll talk about that makes de-extinction possible you know to get to a point where we have a, a passenger pigeon back in the wild or a woolly mammoth on the tundra um all of the steps in that are things that you can use to help endangered and threatened species in a myriad of ways so we see this as like an in building an entire toolkit to to advance conservation into areas that have so far been really really challenging to overcome one of the things i really really like about the topic is that you know there's obviously a lot of technical depth but in broad strokes you can explain what de-extinction is to just about anyone oh yeah uh, yeah and, and not only that it's in terms of um conservation it's an incredibly positive thing yeah i mean uh um you know for anybody that's really interested in, in the in-depth detail. I will say that uh, um, I published a paper kind of defining how the, the discipline is emerging and how we're, we're practicing it in 2018. Um, if you just look up de-extinction, Ben Novak, and the word genes, uh, you'll find the journal. It's open access, free to everybody to download. Um, and I, I, you know, I tried to write in that paper, like, what are we doing in, in both simple and detailed language um, and go through everyone's kind of questions they usually have. And yeah, you know, the, the simplest thing is actually the fact that this idea of de-extinction 
has actually been going on for over a hundred years. Um, and a lot of people, when they hear about the, the biotechnology that we're bringing into it, they think it's brand new. They think, oh, well, this has never been done before. Um, but that's not true at all. So, uh, um, I mean, you're, you're based in Europe right now, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. So just a couple of years ago in Spain, they introduced bison, European bison. And European bison had not lived in Spain for 15,000 years. Um, there's a large year, uh, uh, effort across Europe called rewilding Europe, where they're taking the, the, the living remnants or relatives of extinct populations that went extinct, you know, anywhere from several hundred to several thousand years ago throughout Europe to actually uh, restore wilderness. And that's something that's been going on around the globe here in the United States, uh, where I live in the east, uh, eastern U.S., um, species such as elk um, have been reintroduced, turkey have been reintroduced, uh, species that were missing for over a century. Um, and, you know, they're not extinct everywhere in the globe. So that's what lets people kind of, you know, we can go to the Rocky Mountains, collect some elk there, and then truck them out to the Appalachian Mountains, and then restore elk there. But when it comes to something like a woolly mammoth or a passenger pigeon, there are no pigeons in the world that live the way passenger pigeons did. There's no way you can get an Asian elephant to survive in Siberia um, through the winter. So, you know, there are these ecologically compatible species that could restore habitats, um, but we just can't actually really, really make it work. Um, and so the, the gene editing and the work that we're doing um, with de-extinction is basically pretty simple, is that now we have uh, the, uh, the capability of sequencing an extinct animal's genome. Um, any animal within the last eh, 100,000 years or so, depending on quality of the, the bones or the, the specimens, we can get a genome from. And we can compare that DNA sequence to a living relative, find out all the spots that are kind of different, focus in on the ones that matter for the traits that are going to allow us to achieve our goal. And then through the technologies of gene editing, which, uh, which CRISPR-Cas9 really just blew up in 2012, we can actually not splice in the genes from an extinct species, but rewrite the code, um, which is just so fundamentally different. It's, 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 it's really, really what's launched tons of things in biomedicine and agriculture just in the few years it's been around. And then, of course, with technologies like cloning or germline transmission or stem cell gametogenesis, like these new reproductive technologies that have come out and the older ones that have been tried and true, we can take the cells that we've edited and actually produce an animal that functionally takes the place of a mammoth or a passenger pigeon and has a bit of its genetic legacy. Like that's where it's coming from that makes that happen. Um, and so, I mean, to, to me, of course, I, I, this is my job, is my dream job since I was 13 years old. Uh, I'm fascinated by every step in it. But the, you know, the simplest thing is just looking at an environment that is missing a species, missing its role, and looking at the current state and going, would things be better if we got that back? And we call it restoration, but it's really misleading because no one's, no one's going to reintroduce passenger pigeons in 20 years 
and and think that we're somehow replicating the environment as it was in the year 1864. Um, what we're doing is we're we're rehabilitating a current environment that's just not doing as great as we know its past state did. We'll never actually reconstruct the entire historic state the way it was. The world's always changing, but we can put back the elements to reach that level of biodiversity. And these are the big Bs that we talk about. Biodiversity, bioabundance, and bioproductivity that will allow that habitat to thrive and adapt to continuing changes, allow human beings to um, enjoy it from aesthetics to actual services and economic uh, sources, and of course prevents other species from going extinct that benefit from the roles that these extinct species restore in the environment. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably a lot of words, but <laughs> no, that's, that's great. The uh, I've got a question that's sort of out of left field. In any case, um, you, you just made it sort of popped into my mind as you were speaking. Um, so <laughs> this would be an in, introduced species, right? Are you legally allowed to introduce? You know, you want to bring back the passenger pigeon. There's the technical side of things, but at the end of the day, are you going to be allowed to do it? Yeah, well, well that is one of the leading questions that has yet to have like a definitive answer. I mean, it's right now the answer would be it's, you know, it's is that when we get to that point, it's really just up to the authorities who are who make those decisions. But those decisions, at least here in the United States, in the U.S., um, all wildlife, all natural places belong to the public. Um, there are, you know, there are people that privately own land, of course, but but uh, if you, you don't have if you own land, you don't own the animals on it. Um, because they're transient, they they'll get off your land, um, you know, and go to someone else's land. So wildlife in general is a public asset, and so when decisions are made about management of wildlife or or public habitats, um, national parks, for instance, national forests, grasslands, um, that comes down to their to the support of uh, the American public. So if the American public really wants something to happen, they have a certain amount of influence over it. Um, but it's also, you know, they are also voting in representatives and, and we've hired people in certain agencies to also make those decisions because no one's going to vote, you know, on every salamander reintroduced right. to a particular park. Although this is um, a fairly emotive topic. I, I imagine people will jump on this. Yeah. I mean, it's, and so it's, it, it will be complicated it's, but there are, there are potential regulatory pathways to start going down. The, the, the unique thing about this is people do introduce new species into environments. It's happened many times and it's happened many times um, uh, as sanctioned by governments to do um, for various purposes. So there are ways to do that, um, particularly for conservation purposes. However, the animals we'll be releasing will be gene edited mm. and... And so there's new regulations that have been kind of emerging to try and talk about like, okay, well, how do we, how do we handle that? Like we know that we've in, in the United States, we grow genetically engineered crops. Um, and so maybe in Europe, it would be more of a problem than in the States. It might be more of a problem in Europe than the States, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard to tell. 
Um, I have spoken at European meetings before where people have been considering how gene editing changes our views of, of the, the organisms that we're making. It's not like old genetic engineering technologies. But I will say that right now the United States is leading um, the world in the fact that, uh, uh, as I said, we have GMO crops that are growing, and those are growing throughout the world. It's not just the U.S., but never before has a genetically engineered organism been released to the environment in order to save a species or, or a habitat. It's but never there have been, been done releases, for conservation. right? The, there's, there's fish that have been released that were modified, no? Oh, no, no. Those fish are not released. They're, they're contained. But there's uh, accidental so there's, releases that have happened. As far not as of I'm genetically aware. engineered uh, oh, okay. uh, uh, animals. So, so yeah, people, people have released fish, animals all over the globe for various purposes, but for genetically engineered, no, it's a, a there's never been any genetically engineered animals released, um, in an unsanctioned or sanctioned way to a wild environment. There have been genetically engineered mosquitoes released to control populations, but those are mosquitoes that are engineered to, uh, to be a dead end. They're sterile. They reproduce and it's over. So they don't spread. They don't actually become part of the environment. So at, at, right at the now, end of the discussion, if we have time, I'd like to talk yeah. about gene drives, but I'm not sure we'll, we'll end up with enough time for that. <laughs> yeah. Right now in the U.S., um, uh, a project um, is going to potentially be the very first time that a genetically engineered organism is released to the environment, and it's the transgenic American chestnut tree. Okay. So this tree was once one of the most abundant trees in the eastern United States. Um, it inspired, you know, it actually inspired, you know, the song for Christmas, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Um, and uh, so it's, it, it's culturally, culturally and ecologically significant. But in the early 1900s, um, a, a fungal blight disease got introduced to the United States from Asia on Asian chestnut trees that were brought here as ornamental trees for cities and parks. And that disease obliterated the American chestnut. Over 99% of every American chestnut in the world was wiped out. These um, Chinese viruses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, well, that's another interesting topic. Many of the worst diseases do come out of Asia because it's such a large landmass with so many varied environments. Um, and, uh, and the species there have a long history with those diseases. Um, but anyway... Yeah, so this disease gets to the U.S., wipes out the chestnut tree. It's a few stragglers have survived in a couple pockets, some of them because people actually took chestnuts and transplanted them out of their range, so they were far away from the disease. Um, you know, and none of that was conservation back then, but it was just lucky. Yeah. Uh, and then about 30 years ago, William Powell got, you know, um, working with who, a guy. Who was who, he, sorry? He, William Powell is a genetic engineer botanist at uh, the State University of New York, and he uh, heard he got a, a call from a man who found a chestnut surviving on his land and said, "I would I want to figure out some way to save these trees." And so they started studying how the fungus kills the tree, and and found that the fungus releases an acid into the tree. And that's what ends up killing the tree. Um, 
And it just so happens that most plants in the world have an enzyme that breaks down that acid. I see. But the chestnut tree in America, it hadn't needed that enzyme for for eons so the gene just broke down that's what happens when you don't literally in genetics if you don't use it you lose it that is a general rule of evolution and so Um, now we have this modified tree yeah so they found that they took they took a functional copy of that enzyme put it into the tree and they've produced trees that are 100 percent immune to this disease um, that can now be restored to the environment and they applied to do this to the USDA. Um, it went through public comment period just a few months ago it closed. Just a couple of months ago it closed. Um, and that's being processed. And so it's, you know, there, there's a few agencies that will, that other agencies that are all interplaying into the approval of this. But, you know, we're, we're within, you know, possibly a year or two or less of people being able to plant these transgenic chestnuts in, in their yards, in and the, the government being able to use them to replenish these trees in state forests and national forests and, and private land. And so, you know, in the next century, a tree that was once one out of every four trees in the Appalachian Mountains could be completely restored growing back up in those areas. Um, and it's been missing for, you know, a, a hundred years at this point. Um and that's all because of genetic engineering. And that's really what's setting the precedent for this is it's, you know, people are realizing with uh, issues like disease in birds in Hawaii from avian malaria transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, uh, I mean, disease actually, it's, it's, it's pretty prescient right now with, a, with an emergent virus causing a pandemic for humans to actually, you know, just kind of say that emergent diseases and the spread of diseases have been one of the number one issues facing wildlife for the last few hundred years, because as human beings connected every um, part of the globe, they brought animals and their diseases with them and pests and exposed these species that had never seen these diseases before to it. Just like we've all been exposed to a disease, our bodies have never been seen this before this year. The thing about wildlife though is nobody's making a vaccine for the Christmas Island rats um, yeah. that got wiped out by disease brought by invasive rats a hundred years ago, you know, so it's, it's a, it is a major challenge. Climate change is making it worse. Um, and genetic engineering like this gene editing, it offers ways to, to give these animals a leg up to survive and then be able to adapt. In fact, the term we use for that is called facilitated adaptation. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the need to do that right now is actually, I think, paving the way for getting to the point where we have a legal system that will, you know, have a direct path to saying, okay, I now have a gene edited passenger pigeon that I want to put into the environment. And there's now a precedent. Okay, well, we put the gene edited tree into the environment. Now here comes the pigeon and we've made the whole forest, right? So... So I do think we're getting there, um, and I think around the world, many countries are recognizing that the challenges that wildlife and, and plants face in the oceans, on the land, everywhere, due to rapid, rapidly um, exacerbating changes. Um, it's you know, it's not just climate either. It's it's all of the land use development that has consumed parts of the planet. I mean, we we've taken 
Um, I actually, I'm writing a paper at the moment that should be published in February. That's, that's a, and in it, I discuss the fact that a lot of people think the biodiversity crisis is about the loss of species, how many species are going extinct. But the real crisis we face right now is that all of the species that we think are really common are now living on half or less of the habitat they used to. They've experienced, you know, and, and like their, their populations cannot, you know, the entire population cannot live on half of its land or, or in habitat that it used to have. So these, all these populations of species we don't consider endangered yet are much lower in size than they used to be just a hundred or more years ago. And with that population decline, there's losses of genetic diversity. And so if we look at the extinction crisis on the level of the gene, or really the allele, the, the diversity of genes within an organism in a population, we've obliterated genetic diversity on this planet. It's, mm. it's just absolute annihilation. And genetic diversity is the foundation of adaptation. That's actually terrifying. I, I had not thought of it along these lines before. And uh, so, you know, now we, you know, you, you fast forward. So, you, I mean, you go back hundreds of years and you just see colonists and the changing in the world, eroding habitats, drastically reducing population sizes. You get to this century when we're now, we've drastically changed the climate and that's rapidly happening um, and, and just creating, you know, like the, <laughs> it's, it's amazing that we don't talk about it more because of the pandemic, but just before the pandemic, Australia experienced a mass extinction yeah. level catastrophe um, due to the fires that happened there. And, uh, um, and you know, what's astounding to think about is to think how many species in Australia might have actually gone extinct if they hadn't already been in zoos, you know, because their habitats were obliterated. There was actually a, a certain type of perch that uh, conservationists were rushing out to get to these lakes to scoop up the last ones they had because, because the fires, the combination of the fires. And then after the, the, the rains came, the fires had produced so much ash that the rain in that the, the ash influx into the rivers and the freshwater system was literally causing mass extinctions it poisons of freshwater the species. Oh, just, just, just suffocating them basically. I mean, I mean, it, it turned entire rivers into mud just okay. just sediment it's, it's it's been devastating and you know those are the types of things that now species that once had thousands of individuals have just 10 or 20 left and we've saved species from that brink before but it is very difficult it takes decades and even after decades of recovering species that have experienced such low numbers um, their diversity takes much longer to build back up. It's random mutation and selection that builds back up that diversity. So these gene editing technologies are now so, so necessary in the future. And I think mm -hmm. the world's going to start seeing that and that we need to do it. And it's not necessarily about adding something new into these species. Like we don't have to take a species and give it a new gene and make it something completely brand new to overcome a disease when we can actually just do the exact same thing we're doing with de-extinction, reaching into the past and looking at the gene sequences of something from a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, getting that back into something alive, 
think about that for those species that are still alive, that have experienced a crash. You know, thankfully, with the way scientists were in the 1700s and 1800s, they were going out and they were collecting specimens of everything. Yeah. And so in a museum drawer in Sydney or Perth or Melbourne, there will be specimens in a jar in the drawer of some of those species of fish or some of those species of mammals that have now just literally been virtually wiped out. And we can sequence their DNA and we can take the few individuals that are alive, breed them back up, and then in cell lines of those animals, we can actually edit back in the diversity that they've lost. Okay. I and, mean, and speed they, up the evolutionary I'm, process to their recovery. I'm getting a good picture for, for why this is. I, this is not a side of the story that I had uh, really considered in, in uh, large detail. So can I ask... Um, why, why, why are you starting with the passenger pigeon? When, when, when I speak to, my, I, I told a few of my friends that I'd be speaking with you, and they got really excited that the woolly <laughs> mammoth was going to come back. Uh, so, what is awesome about this pigeon? Uh, and why start here? Well, the, I mean, the simple answer is that the passenger pigeon is awesome. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm quite partial in, to pigeons. In the literal <laughs> sense of the word, the, the the literal definition of the word, awesome. Um, for people that don't know the history of the passenger pigeon, it was the most abundant bird in the in North America, possibly the most abundant bird to ever have lived in the world, in all of history that we know of. The populations in the 1800s, early 1800s, are estimated anywhere between three and five billion, possibly twice as much as that. It's 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 hard to put a number on it because. Um, you know, and even today, nobody can count a billion animals in the wild. Um, and not only was there that many, like, yeah, there's eight, nearly eight billion people, um, but we're spread out across the entire globe. Five billion passenger pigeons lived just in the eastern forests of North America. And they flew in, and they weren't spread out across that forest either. They lived in flocks that were one to two billion birds strong so so the entire the entire species like flew in just like two or three flocks total these just giant giant flocks that blotted out the sunlight took days to pass over one spot and they just they were um as a uh, uh you know historians have have called them a biological tempest i mean the the, the impact they had on forests was so incredible and that's you know, there's we with telling this story like this, you know, we can really pinpoint a few different reasons why we started with passenger pigeons. One is their cultural value to the United States. They were they're 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 an icon of Americana um, in the Eastern U.S. A lot of people now, because they've been gone so long, are not really familiar with them. But for decades and centuries, they were a cornerstone of of meat markets and recreation and you know they were they were this immensely uh uh <laughs> i mean the best way of putting it is it's like you can't you, you can't miss a flock of a billion birds right i mean so they were and because you can't miss a flock of a billion birds you definitely can't miss when it disappears that's the second real cultural value to the passenger pigeon is that at the turn of the century um, in the 1900s, 
the very last passenger pigeon in the wild was shot in 1902. Um, and, and the giant flocks that had lived in the 1800s were virtually gone by, by 1885. Um, and, and, and people just didn't, did not, uh, stop persecuting them. Um, they were, they were harvested on an industrial scale. There was the first time that people were using communication technologies to, to track the movements of a species and go out and harvest it. And because they were these flocks of billions, it was easy to get a lot of birds all at once. There was a guy that had a record shot that he just shot up into the sky and he killed 132 passenger pigeons with one shot. I mean, People, people literally harvested millions at a time. But and how, over... how many people were in the States at that point? I mean, were people eating a pigeon a day? What, how, how did... They were probably eating more than a pigeon a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it was a staple food source in, in many areas. When the birds came through, um, you know, it was, it was the thing they would eat every day for so long that they would eventually be like, oh, don't show me another pigeon. I can't eat it. Um, yeah. Until the 1860s, now when the 1860s rolled around, we had the, uh, the connection of Chicago and New York by a railway. And that went right through the heart of, of passenger pigeon country. And, and we also had the invention of the telegraph. And so those two, two uh, developments allowed people to basically transport passenger pigeons to major city markets within a matter of a day, you know, a few days. It made it to where they could really provide these passenger pigeons to a larger base of people all year round. Um, and so it really intensified the harvesting. And then the telegraphs were able, people were able to, as I said, to be able to say, oh, we just saw a flock go north by St. Louis. And so the trappers and the people going out getting these birds were able to head head off the flocks basically and know where they were going and where they were going to be this was a, a systematic harvesting in a way that the world had never done before um and in just a matter of 30 years it brought about the complete collapse of this species and and because it was people's entire livelihoods because an entire nation was feeding off of this animal when it disappeared it was undeniable Passenger pigeons were not the first species human beings obliterated. You know, we've been causing extinctions for over 100,000 years. Um, and in historic times, you know, the dodo bird was, was driven to extinction in the 1600s. But for years, all the way up to the 1800s, people didn't believe that extinction happened. They didn't, scientists even debated it. You know, it was, it was like, oh, well, the world's big just because we don't see mammoths in Europe anymore, it doesn't mean they're not wandering the great plains of North America. So this is, and, this is the species that really kicked off uh, people thinking about this as a subject, as a possibility. Well, what it did was by the time this extinction came around, scientists were, you know, the, the edges of the map were filling in. Scientists were saying, you know what? Yeah, mammoths are extinct. Dinosaurs are extinct. But all those species died out a long time ago. And so they were like, you know, oh, there's no way human beings caused the extinction of those animals because it happened due to natural causes and other things. And that's when it became weird, oh, like this weird area where people were like, yeah, species don't go extinct because of people. They're, they're in an, they thought, they thought species were an inexhaustible resource. And if they went extinct, it was some part of either a greater plan of God or, or, or nature. And the passenger pigeons extinction 
was the first extinction that was so undeniably caused by human beings that it triggered the modern conservation movement. Um, the modern conservation movement, it had been slowly building up for a couple decades at the time, but it wasn't really gaining traction. And then that extinction made everybody go, whoa. And they started, you know, taking inventory of what we had been doing in the United States. And every species in the eastern United States was on the brink of extinction at the time. I mean, white-tailed deer were nowhere to be found. Squirrels were, were scarce. Wild turkey were, were an endangered species. You know, people don't realize that today. And the passenger pigeon's extinction was a catalyst that made people go, we have to stop doing things the way we're doing them. And in the United States, the very first laws to protect the trade of wildlife went into effect uh, in the early 1900s, thanks to the passenger pigeon extinction. Um, and, and the bison was part of a major recovery program, which was inspired by the pigeon. People used to say, don't let the bison go the way of the pigeon. Um, and, you know, by the early 1930s, we had the advent of ecological science and game management, where people no longer just harvested species in an unregulated fashion, but they were doing harvests in a way to actually help species start to rebound. Um, and, you know, since the passengers' pigeons' extinction in the United States, there has not been a recorded extinction of a species in which the hunting has been regulated. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the number of extinctions due to over-harvest has basically disappeared. The reasons species have been going extinct now for the last century are disease and habitat degradation, habitat loss, reductions in population size for from invasive species. Um, you know, it's the, the cast of threats has kind of shifted. And with that shift in threats, of course, we get back to what I was talking about earlier, that these new these threats we're facing now, they're not new, but since they're they're dominant now, um, these are threats that are just so difficult to handle um, and, and work around where the, the biotechnologies come in. But anyway, your question was why passenger pigeons? We've really gotten a little off of that, but culturally they are the icon that started modern conservation. They're a big piece of American history. So for a lot of reasons, there's, there's philosophical and moral reasons to be like, yeah, we should bring this species back. We should restore it. So, um, but if we move on to the science uh, of why the passenger pigeon one is uh, there are 1500 passenger pigeon specimens in existence to get DNA from. I mean, so it's, that's, that's a thousand more than any other recently extinct bird or mammal. So we, we have a, a, a ability to, to get DNA that was just early on in our work was like, okay, well we can do make a lot of genomes if we need to. Um, and, Pigeons in general, in domestic pigeons and whatnot, we have a lot of husbandry knowledge with these species that goes back, and animal care knowledge that goes back centuries. Um, because it was a economically hunted species, harvested species, the, the historic records of it actually give us a really good picture of what it was like in the environment. People actually took notes. People that bred it in captivity took notes about how they were breeding and whatnot. So we have a, a big chunk of knowledge to be able to design a program that should work. But in the last few years, we've been evaluating 
our hypotheses about how important this species is, is in the environment. And it turns out that, you know, our original hypotheses are really much more supported by the work, um, by the data, that this species was what we call an ecosystem engineer, meaning that it, uh, it shaped the environment through its physical activities in the, in the forest. These, this was, these flocks of billions were coming in, overcrowding branches at a roosting site to the point where they were, cra you know, branches were crashing off of trees under their weight. Entire trees were breaking down from their weight. And in the five or six weeks they would spend in one spot, they would roost in one spot, fly out during the day and eat, come back at night. And they would just build up guano on the forest floor, inches to feet thick. Um, and all that devastation sounds bad, but for anybody that knows Forestry 101, disturbances are vital to forest ecosystems. Um, that, that guano built up on the forest floor snuffs out all of the plants, basically resets the competition for new life to come back. Um, you know, so, so in, an, in an environment that was once closed canopy with not a lot of sunlight getting through, with just shade-loving plants dominating, you now have an environment where the, the, the floorboard has been reset, there's sunlight coming through from all the gaps in the trees, and you get a completely new kind of meadow, open forest habitat springing up in its place, which a whole host of other species get to take advantage of. And then that slowly starts, that canopy slowly starts to regenerate and close in and you get back to the state it used to be. And by the time you get there, the pigeons come back, start it all over again. Um, Have we already lost all of the dependent species or all of the species that were dependent on this process or, or can something still be saved? We, we have not, and that's where we're in a good situation right now. I mean, it's not good, but we're, we're still in a good place to do this, is that over the last hundred years, so after the passenger pigeon went extinct, there was actually a spike in, in wildfires up to the 1930s, and those fires really kept that disturbance cycle going. Um, but there was also less and less forest, so that was a problem. So by the 1920s, forests hit their, their lowest point, and since then, with agriculture shifting to the Midwest and the Great Plains, with strip mines and things like that getting completely tapped out, um, abandoned farms and mines and whatnot have reforested. And there's actually as much forest in the eastern U.S. now as there was in the 1850s. But not um, as diverse? I mean, not the as chestnut diverse, nuts are missing, precisely. for example. It, yeah, we we're missing the chestnut, but also the, the phenomenon people have seen as the forest has come back is because since the 1930s, you know, we've got a huge population in the eastern United States. No one wants wildfires going through and possibly burning down their suburb. So there's been huge, huge amounts of work to suppress fire. And without fire and without pigeons, there's been no reliable source of disturbance to reset those cycles. Um, and so this forest has been regrowing back, but it's all closed canopy. It's shifting to just a few species of trees that dominate in those areas. We are actually living in a state of forests where we've got more forests, but we do have less diversity. The diversity that we had is still here. It's just clinging on in little isolated pockets. Um, and, and in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, forest managers realized that they needed to start 
doing that type of disturbance. So actually human beings now go out on public lands and whatnot and start those disturbance cycles. They go out and they cut branches down, thin trees. They, they'll even burn the understory. Uh, they, they'll do a whole bunch of things to kick this back up. But the problem we face is that only 20% of the forests of the eastern United States are, are public lands. The rest are private. And so, as I said, we've got very small pockets where there's been enough management activity and conservation work to keep all these species around. But if you look into the literature, you'll see time and time again for decades now, people saying that, you know what, if we don't get more disturbances back into our forests, we're going to lose the species that are here. And they might not be go extinct everywhere in the world, but they will be gone from the eastern U.S. And... Our data now shows, well, the pigeon, more than fires, um, you know, was a constant source, reliable. You know, you never know when a fire is really going to happen. Uh, the First Nations people were actually the most responsible care t uh, managers of land for thousands of years that were setting fires and using it as a tool to, to manage land the way they wanted. But even before human beings ever got to the United uh, to North America, pigeons were a constant perpetual source of disturbances, nomadically moving and creating this mosaic. Um, and, you know, so looking forward to the future, it's like, okay, we haven't lost everything yet. We've seen from the types of activities humans do that we can, you know, we can get this cycle going, we can manage this stuff. But why not, you know, rather than spending hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars every year in perpetuity, to try and keep 10% of what we've got, you know, left around, why not spend, you know, 20, 30 million dollars in a few decades, create these pigeons, get them back into the environment, and then they take over and they do the job. The overhead does seem worth it. I think you've sold it to me. <laughs> um, so how do we do it then? What's what's the What's the... What's the basic idea from the theory side of how you actually go about now? Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a, a special bonus with this. I'm going to give you the steps to getting passenger pigeons back. And it, along the way, I'm going to tell you what we've already accomplished. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to take a, just put it, put it out there of what we still need. Because, um, you know, we, as, as Revive and Restore is a nonprofit organization, we rely completely on donations from anybody around the world can donate. Um, but even more so than that, you know, we do not have a laboratory in a building. We, we're not that we're, we're a small office of people that work with partners. And so there's a whole host of science that we still need on these projects, you know, that that bioinformaticians and other people around the world could help us out with. All of our data is open access. So anybody in the world could be working with us and contributing. Um, we don't necessarily have funding to just go ahead and hire full-time staff on some of this stuff. So we really rely on collaboration. Um, and, you know, with that going into it, what we do is first step, sequence the DNA of the passenger pigeon. We have done that. Um, starting in 2013, we wor started working with Beth Shapiro. She's a world-leading paleogenomicist, um, and I worked in her lab for four years. And we sequenced the genomes of two passenger pigeons. Um, and we sequenced small bits of DNA from like 30 more. We got DNA from 4,000-year-old pigeons and pigeons from the 1600s, most of them just from the 1800s. 
Um, and we published those genomes in 2017, cover story of Science Magazine. All of our data is on GenBank. Anyone can access that. Um, so we, we created the data sets. We did some preliminary analyses. We know, you know that there's about a 3% difference between a band-tailed pigeon and a passenger pigeon. We also know, you know the structural changes and some of the other things that are important. Um, a few years later, so I should say that, of course, we also sequenced the genome of its living relative, the band-tailed pigeon, to be able to do that comparison. Um, a couple of years later, Ares, uh, uh, Aiden Lieberman's lab updated that genome for us. So we have a really nice, high-quality uh, band-tailed pigeon genome that is once again open access. Anyone can download this stuff and start analyzing passenger pigeons and band-tailed pigeons. Um, the... In the meantime, while we were building up that genomic resource, so you need that to be able to figure out the blueprint, but you also need the two other steps, of course. The next step is doing the gene editing in the cells in a Petri dish, and then taking those cells and turning them into embryos and offspring. That's really, really difficult in birds. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. Now, step three, of course, is then breeding your birds and putting them back into the wild. And we've done a little bit of work on kind of every step of the way. So putting them back in the wild, of course, relies on knowing stuff about their ecology, how the animals breed, etc. So we've done preliminary work, uh, studies of how band-tailed pigeons breed and grow up. Those are published. Um, uh, that was uh, done by workers at the Bronx Zoo with a flock of band-tailed pigeons. Um, we also uh, worked with some band tail pigeons with a volunteer, Paul Marini, um, who was the first person to show that you could actually get those birds to breed out of season. So you could actually produce more offspring per year than just through the breeding season, which is going to be really instrumental for us later on. Um, and we also studied their diet and, and started piecing together how that would impact forests, things like that. Um, so, and all of that's published. Most of it is open access. If it's not open access, anybody can get a hold of me and I will send them the PDFs. Uh, my email is on reviveandrestore.org. Um, so it's just actually reviverestore.org. You can find my contact. Um, so we've built the genomes and what we need from there is we haven't been able to figure out exactly what genes might be involved in what traits. We know what traits we care about. We care about traits that affect social behavior, uh, coloration, um, the speed of development, um, possibly diet and physiology, but really it's behavior and how quickly they grow that are the main two things we care about. So can, I ask, yeah. can I ask quickly, you, you're not looking to, it sounds like you're not looking to re recover that entire 3% difference, only a smaller portion of genes which are relevant to the conservation. Oh yeah, you know, if, if it's likely that it's 0.01% of that that creates the passenger pigeon as it was in the environment. Um, the, uh, you know, changes just accumulate over time. You know, between you and me, there are thousands of mutations that are different, but we're both human. Mm -hmm. um, if you compare our DNA to a chimpanzee, you know, there's going between you and the chimpanzee, there might be a few million differences. But when you add me into the picture, some of those differences are no longer differences between humans and chimpanzees. It's just you as an individual versus the mm -hmm. chimpanzee, right? 
So, so what we're really looking for is one, those sets of mutations that are just between the species. And then recognizing that over 12 million years of evolution between these species, a lot of that has just accumulated. It doesn't actually influence any trait. So we have to sort through it and try to figure out, okay, well, what, have, what you know, it's, it'll cost a lot of money and time to try and make 25 million mutations in a genome. If only 300 of them create the behavior and the physical traits and the things that we need, you know, that's what we're trying to find. So, you know, it'd be great to get collaboration with people around the world interested in answering those kind of functional genomic questions from our data so that we can start building that blueprint. Um, in the meantime, I was working actually in Australia for two years, and we had a, a mix of very great work and disappointment. We, we said, okay, we're going to genetically engineer pigeons for the first time using technologies that exist right now. Um, and we did not produce a genetically engineered pigeon. That was the disappointment. But we did develop the protocol necessary to be able to, be able to do it. So what that is that means work is, continuing down in Australia, or is it? It is. It is uh, done for now. Um, um, I've moved back to the states for family reasons, and so that that work will eventually continue. But I'll, I'll get to that. Um, is so to do de-extinction for birds, we need to be able to culture something called a primordial germ cell. Okay. Um, it's the only cell type that you could do gene editing in, and then produce offspring afterwards. Um, for mammals and other species, you can use skin cells, you can use stem cells, all kinds of stuff. But in birds, you have to have the germ cells, the cells that will, in the adults, become sperm and eggs. Okay. Um, and the, the conditions to be able to culture and keep those cells alive in a laboratory has only been accomplished for the domestic chicken. And the recipe that keeps chicken cells alive has so far failed to keep the cells of any other type of bird alive, probably because of how long it's been domesticated and how much it's been changed through domestication. So, so to do this, we need to be able to grow band-tailed pigeon germ cells in a Petri dish. Um, we're actually starting that work right now. That work is ongoing at Texas A&M, but with a different species of bird called the uh, pinnated grouse. Mm -hmm. um, it's the living relative of an extinct bird called the heath hen that we're working with, and they're in the same family as the chicken. So we're, we're, we, we, you know, we know this works in chicken, so we're kind of we're inching out evolutionarily um, to try and figure out how we make this work in wild birds before we end up going to pigeons. So can um, I ask, you're then going to have ultimately a band, two band hail pigeons, a male and a female, which yeah. produce uh, these primordial germ cells? Yes. Yeah, they'll, they'll have, so we put those, so in the Petri dish, we've got the band tail pigeon primordial germ cells. Assuming we have all the collaboration and help we have from scientists that we need that once again, shouting out anybody that wants to work with us, email me. Um, we'll put those mutations into those cells to create basically new passenger pigeon germ cells, then implant those germ cells into a male and a female, as you said, and the male will produce passenger pigeon sperm, the female will produce passenger pigeon eggs, and we breed them, and then out of the egg hatches the passenger pigeon. Now... So this, I, I don't understand one, one, one part. So are the primordial germ cells the sperm and eggs themselves, or the cells no, no, that no, produce they're, they're the cells that they're the cells that produce So they're the part of the, and the testes eggs. And, and yeah, eggs. Yeah. Okay. yeah, they're the very first cells that form in the embryo 
uh, that 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 basically become the reproductive uh, cells. I see. So so you 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 start yeah. off with an embryo. Yeah. You you alter that embryo so it produces a bird which has these uh the the sperm cell producing uh testes that you want yeah yeah i mean mean, a good way of thinking about it is um through like thinking of in vitro fertilization in people Mm -hmm. you have a, a donor father and a donor mother right you collect sperm you collect eggs you make an embryo in a petri dish you then put it into a surrogate mother if you think about it in the realm of birds you have a donor father and a donor mother, but you're getting the germ cells from from them when they're embryos, when they're still when they're still at an embryonic state, a stem cell basic state. You're then rather than making an embryo from those in vitro, you're implanting that into a surrogate mother and a surrogate father, and then they make the embryo the natural way. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's so it's it's best to be thinking about it in terms of like donor cells and surrogate parents. Um, it sounds like these, one of the positive yeah. uh, things there is then those engineered parents can produce multiple. Oh yeah, you don't yeah. have to keep doing it by hand, right? Just exactly, there. exactly. Once you have a breeding pair, um, and that's what some of our previous research has shown, like a single breeding pair, we might be able to get thirty to fifty offspring every year out yeah. of. And they'll live for and breed like like pigeons can live up to fifteen to twenty years, and they, they they breed really well for about five to six, eight years or so. So yeah, we can get from a single pair of these birds, we can get a, a few hundred offspring. Um, now the other cool thing is you can put germ cells from multiple donors into the surrogate father or mother, and basically use a single pair of birds as if it were an entire flock. Wow. Okay. And it's so like they those could lay trees with multiple branches splashed onto them. Exactly, exactly. So like a single pair of these surrogate parents could lay two eggs in a clutch, and those eggs are not even siblings genetically. Mm. You know, um, it's so you could you could you know, there's a lot we can do with that, but we have to be able to culture the cells to get there. That's the big problem. And where I said where our work in Australia was positive is we were not working with culturing the cells. We were trying to ed- engineer the cells inside the birds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a technique that works, but it's just, you cannot, you cannot scale it up to the needs of de-extinction. Um, you know, you can make like maybe one change at a time and we need to make hundreds, right? So, um, and it's, it's a long laborious process, but the mechanics of it are exactly the same. So when we have our cultured primordial germ cells, we have to take a, uh, an egg, a fertile egg, cut a little window into it, inject those cells into the developing surrogate mother or father, patch that egg up, incubate it, hatch it. And the thing about a pigeon is unlike a chicken, it is helpless when it's born. It absolutely needs parental care. So either a human being has to raise that baby, which is incredible amounts of labor, or you need to get a foster pair of parents to do that, which is not always so easy. So, so that entire process of opening up the egg, making an injection, incubating, and then raising that baby, that is the system that we developed in Australia for the very first time in pigeons. People had tried before and they had failed. So we were able to take domestic pigeons, open up their eggs, inject a new gene into their germ cells, and it did work. It just, 
it didn't work as well as we wanted it to. Patch up those eggs, put them under a foster pair of parents to incubate. Um, or so, sorry, not no, sorry. We incubated them artificially, and then when they were ready to hatch, we were able to transfer them to a foster pair of parents that were sitting on dummy eggs. And then those parents accepted the the offspring as their own and raised it to adulthood. We raised a total of twenty four um, pigeons that way. Um, and as I said, no one in the world had ever been able to do it before like that. So um, basically, we've shown that we know the the animal care system and the egg handling system to be able to make a passenger pigeon when the day comes. But we need to now develop those other resources to plug in the the gaps. So we've got. Basically, in our three steps of sequencing genomes, doing the gene editing, making the embryos, and returning to the wild, we've got um, we've got genomes. We've done a little bit of analysis, but we need help with more. We do not yet have the cells cultured to be able to make them, but we're starting that work with a different species and working towards that. Once again, if there are laboratories in the world that want to try working with band-tail pigeon cells, we do have a flock of those birds that we can start uh, using to get cells to, to do that work. Um, so anybody that wants to put their time in, once again, you're welcome to collaborate. Um, we do have the process to be able to make the manipulated birds. Um, and we do know a great deal now about how to breed them and how to care for them and how to, and where possibly to return them to the wild because of our ecological knowledge. But what we need there, of course, is going to be, as you said, the, the regulatory partners and people to start navigating once we're downstream. We need zoo partners and captive breeding partners to be able to scale up and produce a lot of birds for restoration. Um, you know, when we get down to that downstream part, we're talking about needing hundreds of people on board on this project with multiple institutions. Whereas, you know, at the earlier stages, we can get by with a few dozen people working on this. Hmm. So, so it sounds like getting a few hatchlings is, is a vastly different problem to having a viable population at the end. Exactly. You know, yeah. So, you know, yeah, making the first couple dozen birds is something we can do at a single facility. And, but eventually, you know, you're going to run out of space. Um, Can I ask, um, you know, let's imagine everything goes perfectly, that the dream scenario unfolds at this point. Um, you know, how many years do you need and what sort of funding do you need to get that first clutch? You know, to get to that first clutch, um, you know, in... In truth, we're probably looking at, let's see, well, I'll break this down. Um, a donation somewhere in the, uh, uh, or accumulation of donations somewhere in the one to $1.5 million range would be enough to cover about maybe three to five years of work on the primordial germ cell part and, and developing that system in pigeons. The majority of that cost goes to caring for a flock of birds, right? So, I mean, I mean to actually, you, you have to have your band-tail pigeons and your other surrogate pigeons before you ever have passenger pigeons. Um, so, um, you know, and in parallel, if we then bumped up to, say, like maybe two to three million dollars in parallel, we could then possibly hire on some bioinformaticians and some staff to really full-time be, be looking at these genomes, um, and, and developing the, the uh, blueprint for how we're going to do the gene editing in these cells. 
And really, once we have the cells and a system that works to produce offspring and and a series of, you know, known genes to change, we can rapidly start creating the bird. And at that point, that's when we need to possibly either partner with existing zoos and facilities or build some new facilities to start breeding those birds and preparing them to go to the wild someday. And at the same time with that, the regulatory, you know, people don't consider this, but going through the regulatory pathway costs money. It's people's time as well as application and, and, and networking costs that come into working with the regulators to go, okay, well, you need form A116 or whatever, and we need to have a public comment period. You know, it costs money to bring people together in a town hall meeting, right? So um, in truth, I think in, if we had um, a donor right now from anywhere in the world that really just wanted to see this happen, if we had a 15 to $20 million donation, upwards of $25 million all up front, we could produce the first passenger pigeons in less than 10 years. It's um, actually pretty cheap. I mean, <laughs> yeah. On, and, on, and that on would be covering possibly. Funding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, after that point, the, the maintenance and breeding, et cetera, I mean, for conservation programs that breed animals, it's several million dollars every year. Um, you know, the California condor program has been an amazing program that has taken a species that went to the verge of extinction and has repopulated it back into the wild. It has been going on for, you know, they, they captured the very last one the year I was born. So they've been doing this for 33 years and, um, you know, they spend two to $4 million every year, um, running that program, but it employs hundreds of people. Um, you know, so it's one way to look at this as, yeah, there's a cost to it, but it's also producing economic, you know, exchange at the same time. So, um, yeah, I mean, as you said, like the overhead of this is definitely more expensive than most conservation projects, but then it becomes kind of basically the same as every other conservation project in the long run. And I believe with that kind of money, like 20 to 25 million, we can build the right type of breeding facilities at the right areas to be actually be able to rapidly expand this population to get it to the wild sooner, to get to a sustaining wild population sooner than most other programs get the chance to do. Um, but yeah, and you know, we could be looking at wild passenger pigeons sometime in the 2040s or 2050s after mm -hmm. building up a large enough captive population and going through all of that regulatory work. But once again, every step of this not only relies on having that money, but just having support from the public that want to see this happen. To me, I, I'm really hoping that this is something that an entire generation of Americans and people from all over the world, every culture, First Nations people, uh, uh, immigrants, you know, people born here, uh, every creed, every religion can actually look at and go, you know what, this is something really worthwhile to get behind. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not doing this for profit. We're not doing this to advance any type of corporate gain. You know, we're, we're doing this because we want to see something happen that's beneficial in the environment. And so far our donors, you know, have kept us going on the, on the kind of a collaborative, you know, way. I will say that the de-extinction programs, Mammoth and Passenger Pigeon are, are virtually shoestring budget projects. The majority of Revive and Restore's work where we get the most support is for, uh, 
is for endangered species. And in this year, we've been able to actually kind of grow to twice the size we were. We are now a funding agency. Not only are we spearheading our own projects with, with species, but we're able to actually support projects around the world that that match and align with our mission. So we can kind of be a funding partner rather than just a funder and, uh, and maintain kind of a community of these genetic rescue uh, conservationists. And we convene meetings. You know, there's a lot of things we do that is changing the way conservation is thought of as a paradigm and, and how people are approaching the, solution, the, the problems they have to develop solutions. And th that ranges from just using DNA data genomes and sequencing to make better decisions about how to breed animals for restoration or to move them in the environment for reintroductions or augmentations um, to populations to where to protect habitat where you know where is the primary place where people where, where they breed or where they migrate um, all the way to you know using gene, gene editing to allow a species to overcome a disease or for we've got we've actually got I think seven or eight now different projects, all a part of what we call the Coral Reef Advanced Toolkit. And these are people that are just looking at the fact that it's predicted that mo almost all of our coral reefs that we, you know, like the Great Barrier Reef is what I mean. Like many of our coral reefs will be gone by 2050 mm -hmm. um, because of climate change. And so there are people looking at every possible tool they can use to start fixing that. And it turns out that, you know, even just discovering how to save coral reefs is difficult because no one has really ever made them really easy to work with in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. So our toolkit is all about actually just enabling the discovery. We've got people working on generating coral stem cells, people working on um, how to cryopreserve uh, fragments and cells and samples of corals. People, uh, we, we're funding people to actually spread existing methods that they've developed to train groups around the world. There's a laboratory in Florida that has been able to have great success in being able to uh, induce breeding in captivity, uh, which is huge because to date, most labs in the world, if they wanted to work on embryos of corals, had to go out while the species were breeding in the wild and collect them from the wild or wait every year until the one day in the tank they released their eggs and so to be able to induce that whenever you need to mm -hmm. allows people to actually do work all year round versus once a year. So, um, and then, you know, uh, and we've also had people studying, you know, can you use pharmaceutical drugs and other things to actually simulate the types of things that are happening in the wild so that you can start figuring out how the transcriptomics changes when a, when a coral is stressed, what genes are at play? Is it the symbiont or the coral? Um, and so we've got a whole host of work working on reefs with that. Um, we now have, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh. you know, I think I, one of the yeah. good, the good things is uh, once you have a clutch, I think that's the point at which yeah. the, the floodgates will open for many years. You know, recently there was a detection of gra gravitational waves. Those groups that were working on those detections for years were getting very little funding, but as soon as you, they had that first detection, now there's, there's, oodles of funding in comparison to before. So hopefully yeah. that also happens in your case uh, once well, you do is, get that, that first what, five uh, You know, that brings us back to that American chestnut story is that um, William Powell, you know, when they started their work, um, lots of people were telling them this is pointless. Um, you'll never succeed. And they had a, there was another program going on in parallel 
where they were hybridizing American chestnuts with Asian chestnuts, hoping that they could produce a strain um, and then back cross it and produce something that's mostly American chestnut, but inherited the immune system of the Asian chestnut. And, you know, both those programs have been going simultaneously. And, you know, it, it, the results end up speaking for themselves. And William Powell said, you know what? Success is what breeds support. Like, like people might not be able to see your vision and, and, and people might not be able to get behind, oh, yeah, we got to overcome this barrier, this barrier. But once, yeah, once they see the birds in a nest, you know, once there's a press release to the world going, hey, look, we've got a couple de-extinct passenger pigeons that look the way we wanted them to look, that are behaving the way we wanted them to behave. Yeah, it's pretty hard to look at a living, breathing organism and then get caught up on your qualms about other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, when people finally saw the trees that were resistant to the disease, it was like, okay, you've got something here. You can do this. And it just so happens that, you know, in the 30 years it took for that to work, the people doing the hybridization, they, you know, they had some partial success, but they haven't been able to produce trees that are as resistant to the blight as William Powell's group did. Mm -hmm. And that was actually, you know, they've, they've come together as an entire program just with the goal of saving chestnuts rather than competing with each other for who's going to have the best solution. And I think that's another key thing I love about the conservation space is, is unlike biomedicine and agriculture where you have competing interests, corporate, you know, uh, uh, interests and, and patents and whatnot, is that people really can come together and work in parallel and say, you know what, yeah, maybe there's three or four solutions to this, but our goal is all the same. We want to save species and their habitats. And, and so there's always room to actually work together in conservation. So one thing I'm a bit curious about is it sounds, from all that you're saying, that the passenger pigeon is really not the end of the story. It sounds like you can take this technology in many different directions. Can I order, you know, can I put in a request for an elephant bird or a hast <laughs> eagle or something? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so sure, you can put in your request for whatever you want, um, but then you got to find the guy who has $25 million to help us make that happen. <laughs> the thing is, you know, the dodo as well. I mean, the, these iconic birds would be such a tourist draw. If you could get something, and the like dodo this. especially, actually, is one that that would be very good, easy to fit in with the passenger pigeon project because they're both pigeons. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody knows the dodo is just a is, is it, it it's doesn't look like it right, but it is a giant pigeon. Is there enough um, material? So the same laboratory that sequenced the passenger pigeon genome that I worked with has sequenced a dodo bird genome, mm -hmm. um, and they have been researching that for a couple years now. And yes, I mean we we have the same tools in place. And that's the thing is like, if we can get the germ cells of a bantail pigeon and breed bantails, then we can definitely do it with the Nicobar pigeon, which is the living relative of the dodo. So, I mean, in truth, Are if someone really wants size? to see it. Because the dodo was quite large, right? The dodo will present some challenges with size, but, um, but those are not insurmountable. Those, uh, those how do you get around them. that? Uh, well, There's a number of ways it could be tried. I mean, uh, it, 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 might, it might be a tangent that confuses some listeners, but... Uh, That's okay, let's do it. <laughs> so, crazy thing about birds is, is once an egg is laid, like, like mammals are easier to work with from an embryonic state. 
But once an egg is laid, um, you know, you can crack it open, you can pour a bird into a different egg, you can grow it in a dish. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of manipulation there that you can do. So you can take, you know, a, a Nicobar pigeon, which lays a tiny egg, that it's going to hatch a giant dodo, and just open up the egg and put it into a larger egg. Huh. Um, now, the question there is whether or not there will be enough yolk reserve to grow the entire embryo. You know, so there may, but however, there are ways to graft bird embryos onto other yolks. Has that, um, has that, so that's been done. That's the technology. That's been that... done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we could, what we could do is we could edit a Nicobar pigeon's germ cells, implant them into a domestic pigeon um, to be kind of the optimal surrogate. And when they start laying these teeny tiny eggs with baby dodos in them, we crack those eggs open take the embryo off and graft it onto the yolk of say a turkey or a goose egg. And then you hatch your dodo out of one of those eggs. I, I'd never heard of that before, but okay. So, but then the question goes back to the elephant bird, which was enormous. Do we have, is an ostrich egg big, <laughs> big enough? No, it is not. Um, and that's where it might come down to a combination approach of, of, uh, you know, it's like this, right? Like if you breed a large, hybridization studies are good for this. Um, if you hybridize two species that are very different sizes, a lot of the time the embryo you have, the, the offspring you get is in between. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we take, say, the genes of an elephant bird that make size and put them in only as single copies rather than double copies, theoretically we should get an animal about half the size of of a full-grown elephant bird and so once we have those you can start working to kind of progressively get a larger bird it, it presents more challenges it does it, it would be much better to work with something that's in line with with sizes that we can we can transfer like you know to if we could graft onto an ostrich egg and make that work that'd be great um but uh, yeah, I mean, these, each species is going to pose problems and challenges. And to me, that's just part of the, the kind of the, the fascinating part of taking on the projects. It's like, well, how do we overcome that stuff? How do we move through it? Um, but I mean, if anybody's really interested in seeing a dodo bird again, they should definitely fund our passenger pigeon work because <laughs> it is paving the way to making a dodo as well. Um, well when, and, when I publish this, I'll put all the appropriate links down in the description. So. Awesome. Awesome. Um, um, yeah, so I mean, uh, and, and of course there's other cool extinct pigeons, but you know, we've got these two bird programs, one with the heath hen, one with the pigeon. We've, we've, uh, had people interested in maybe moving on to the great auk. Um, and you know, the more diversity of animals we can start working with, you know, not only enables more de-extinction, but enables more ability to just save species we have, um, before they get into problems of of going ex of becoming extremely rare, as well as saving species that just can't cope with climate change or disease or invasive species, or even actually being able to use these technologies to humanely control invasive species. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned you know gene drives and whatnot. Those are some of the solutions people are coming up with to try and combat. Well well, Pest can I say, species. before we go into gene drives, just so people don't well, get we probably, lost. We probably shouldn't go into gene drives. <laughs> that needs its own, own okay, phone okay. call. <laughs> so let's, let's not go in that direction. I, what I wanted to ask, though, uh, just quickly is, so 
does so this this technology is quite different to the cloning of Dolly, but can it also be applied to say uh, fish and lizards? Is or yeah, maybe yeah. So, insects? So uh, people do use the same germline transmission technique that we've talked about for birds in fish. It's actually being explored right now for the conservation of sturgeons, which are critically endangered everywhere. Um, we still eat them. And, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, um, and it would, it's likely the technology that would work for reptiles. No one's really done this with reptiles. Um, cloning works for amphibians um, to a degree. There's some challenges to overcome there. But people have done germline transplants in, in amphibians as well. So this germline transplantation actually would work for a variety of things. And actually just last year um, in 2019... Uh, a team of scientists published that they had accomplished germline transmission in goats, cattle, sheep, and mice um, with a new technique that they used. Um, to date, until they had done that, the only, the only mammal that anyone had ever succeeded with that was mice, like 40 years ago. And then no one got it with anything else. And they've been able to do it with males. I should say that they've done it with males right now only. They have not yet done it with females. But... You know, that's still, you know, let's say you have a wild species of goat that's facing a challenging disease, right? Well, what they did um, was, was knock out a particular gene that makes the germ cells in a, in a regular goat so that it no longer has any of its own. So you can take the cells from a different goat put it in the male, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you work with the germ cells in a Petri dish, you edit it in an antibody that allows them to overcome that disease. You then, of the, for the wild goat, you then put the edited wild goat cells into one of these special uh, surrogate domestic goats and it produces a bunch of semen. Mm -hmm. You then use that to artificially inseminate a whole bunch of wild females of that species. And all of the offspring now have inherited one copy of this new antibody and you start spreading a trait into a population. So, I mean, like, there's tons of ways in which this same technology could start helping species around the globe. Um, but we definitely need to continue the innovation, um, um, work with more, something we're doing with, uh, and this comes to um, some work that Revive and Restore actually just released last August, was uh, uh, as part with partnership with a company called Viagen Pets and Equine and San Diego Zoo Global, we cloned the world's first endangered Chevalsky's horse. Um, and that's actually the very first time a species has been cloned for the purpose of genetic rescue huh. um, in history. And uh, the horse's name is Kurt, and he is alive and thriving today. I'm actually going to go visit him this month. That's something um, I wanted to ask you about, actually. So Dolly, who was the first clone, died quite young. Was that Dolly was to... not the first clone. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you have to you're tell actually, me about you're that. You're actually getting also... onto a, 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 a. This year, I've done research into two big topics. So, so one is cloning, and the other is translocations and whatnot. And that's how I was able to tell you stuff about like, oh, bison have been returned to Spain after fifteen thousand years. But you're you're hitting like the questions that have been all about my work this year. Um, so first, I'll say this is that one. Um, we did produce the clone Chevalsky's horse, and the amazing thing about that horse is that we used cells that were frozen 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that is a species that went, became extinct in the wild, 
every every zoos worked very hard to repopulate those and reintroduce them in Mongolia and China and Russia and Hungary. They have wild free roaming herds now. Um, it's a species that's, that's, that's really not out of the amazing. It's not out of the woods yet, but it is recovering, right? It was extinct in the wild. It was downlisted to critically endangered. It's been recently downlisted to endangered. I mean, it's, it's, it's going, you know, it's, it's going in the right direction. But all 2,000 living Chevalsky's horses, whether they're in zoos or the wild, are descended from 12 original Chevalsky's horses captured in the early 1900s. And it's a little more complex than just that, but to simplify it, you know, you know, the, the breeding in the first few decades managed, you know, to really make just a lot of loss of genetic diversity for that species. And so we reached back into the past to grab the cell line of, of a male called Kuporovich because it was known that he had unique ancestry to two of those 12 original horses. Where did that, where did that uh, DNA come from? Sorry, th those were cells preserved at the San Diego Zoo. Okay, um, and uh, uh, Kuporovich was bred. He had he does have some living descendants, but he he was not bred very much, um, and so he has this unique ancestry to the original founders. Um, that is just not represented very much in the population anymore. And so that was the reason we decided to choose him to be able to actually get a second chance and get his diversity spread throughout the population better. Because, you know, in the four generations since he was, he, since he, uh, he died, or, or I mean, sorry, since he was, uh, born, born, um, and was breeding, um, every generation only inherits half of his mm -hmm. diversity, right? So, I mean, it's like this, this, it's this issue of genetic drift in small populations that we face. So yeah, so we cloned him. And what's amazing to me is, so we named the clone Kurt after the founder of the, the frozen zoo at San Diego, Kurt Benersky. And, uh, um, Kurt is thriving. He's doing really well. When he grows up and breeds, he'll be the, it'll be the first time a clone has ever been resurrected from the past to bring back diversity. And, uh, um, the neat thing is he was born the same year as as his great great grandchildren. <laughs> um it, but uh but yeah, so um you know the, the technology to clone Kurt was basically very similar to the technology to clone Dolly and and you know you hit on one of the, the one of the key things right away is there's a lot of misconceptions about cloning as a technology. Mm -hmm. One is that Dolly was the first clone. Dolly was not the first clone. Dolly is the most famous clone um, because of the breakthrough that she represented. So the first cloned animals ever produced were actually cloned in 1957. Okay. And they were frogs. Wait, when was Dolly? 1996. I mean, that's quite a... They won by quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and uh, and people were uh, cloning different types of frogs and salamanders and fish in the 60s and 70s. And then in 1981, uh, a team of people successfully cloned mice. And those were the first cloned mammal. And then they cloned sheep and cattle in the late 1980s. So actually the first cloned sheep were cloned in 1986. The thing that made Dolly different was that all of those clones 
for nearly 40 years had been cloned using embryonic cells, Mm -hmm. which embryonic cells, if you know anything about, you know, embryos and stem cells and whatnot, they can become any tissue. They can, you know, they, they, they're very plastic. Whereas if I take a cell from an adult sheep Mm -hmm. that is a skin cell, that cell is programmed to be skin. It is not programmed to be muscle tissue or fat tissue or, or brain tissue. Right. I mean, so it's like, the challenge was how do you get an adult cell to be reprogrammed to an embryonic state? And Dolly was the first organism ever cloned from adult cells. Mm -hmm. And she did die young. However, she did not die because she was a clone. Um, Not a lot of people know that Dolly, um, she lived to be about six years old. Um, She produced offspring. She was fertile. She reproduced. She had babies. Um, Her babies were healthy. Uh, She was largely healthy, but she was confined to living indoors, which gave her arthritis um, and and also what made it, you know, uh, at a greater chance of risk of being exposed to disease if disease came through with certain animals. Um, And that's what happened is that um, there was an epidemic just like COVID going through kind of a sheep farm industry and whatnot. And, and Dolly was, it wasn't, they weren't able to move her to a safe place before she was exposed and she got exposed to a virus. The viral infection caused her to grow uh, uh, tumors in her lungs. And so it was, an, it was that that killed her. And what not very the damage many that's know, done to your sort of research. I mean, Oh God, it's been, it's, 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 it's the social perception of cloning because of the, <laughs> because of the misconceptions of, of what happened with Dolly. Mm. And then other things since, right? So like in 2001, the world's first extinct subspecies was cloned, but it died seven minutes later. The first mm. endangered species was cloned in 2000. This was the Ibex? The... That, that was the Ibex, yeah. The first endangered species, a, a type of wild cow called a gar, was cloned in 2000. It died two days later. Um, I mean, these, 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 because they were dealing with endangered species, these once again, like Dolly, they got a lot of press, they got a lot of attention and the, the Gower died of disease. The Ibex did die because of an abnormality, which could, which happens with clones. But the thing that people don't appreciate about those projects is those were not projects to the scale of what people working with sheep or cattle or cats or dogs do. You know, they were working with low funds they couldn't work with as many animals as they could have. And absolutely, the team that cloned the Ibex, if they had had more money and more resources, would have produced healthy babies. And what's um, the status there? Has that continued since... That was 2003? That was 2003, or? yeah. They they renewed some experiments in 2013. Um, once again, did not have you know enough resources to really do a large-scale experiment. Didn't get any pregnancies there. And so far, that project has kind of been uh, uh, just shelved because um, a related species of ibex has actually been introduced into the former range of the extinct subspecies, and they're thriving. They're doing really well. So there, there really might not be a great need to kind of bring that extinct species back because its relative is doing its job in the environment. Um, but the truth is, is that in the last 20 years, people have cloned and produced healthy, fertile coyotes uh, healthy wolves. They've cloned um, a European mouflon that, once again, sadly What's a mouflon, died. Of, sorry, it's a it's a wild type of sheep. 
in Europe. Okay. Um, and that clone sadly died um, young as well, but it did survive to adulthood. It got hit by the same disease that killed a lot of sheep in that species. Um, there's There's been a lot of good successes with cloning, but, you know, because of some of these misconceptions and these these you know, how people think about how cloning has been done, it's really prevented it from ever really being used in conservation because a lot of people working in, in the conservation field, scientists especially, they might, they're not even all aware of, of how much work has been done in cloning and how it can be used. And so, you know, it's been 24 years since Dolly was cloned. And just now we've finally, you know, done genetic rescue cloning for the first time. And so Revive and Restore, we're really hoping that we can, you know, kind of work towards a new era where people really start using these technologies and adopting them more in strategic ways. And we've been kind of developing multiple programs um, uh, to, to kind of do this. And um, I think the biggest thing about the misconceptions of Dolly that not a lot of people know is that the same cells that were used to clone Dolly were actually used again several mm -hmm. years later. Um, actually more than a decade later, to make more sheep clones. And so Dolly has uh, four living identical sisters, <laughs> and they have all lived to old age. I see. But they were raised in a pasture, outdoors. Mm -hmm. uh, only one of the four clones has developed arthritis like Dolly. Mm -hmm. And it shows, so it shows that the arthritis is not from the cloning process. It's not genetic. Otherwise, they all would have got it. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so it's, it's, it's really about environment. Um, and so, you know, not a lot of people know that whole story about what's happened since Dolly. I, I said, um, I was not aware of it. I, I have to ask, also, I uh, should say is it, it is just a tool, right? So it's, it's a reproductive tool that if you have living cells of something, you can, you can use it. If you have surrogate mothers and things that you can put the clones into, you can use it. A lot of resources, things have to happen, right? So nobody's going to be cloning woolly mammoths or cloning extinct species because those all died out long before we were able to preserve their cells mm -hmm. in, a, in an ideal state. But by preserving as much tissue samples as we can of endangered species today, we can use technologies like this germline transfer or, or cloning to be able to, in the future reach back into the past, grab some diverse individuals and help those species. So exactly is that a, like what is that a program that's underway? Are there groups now that are, uh, are there genetic libraries that are being put into place? Yeah, they started in the 1970s, um, actually. And they're all over the world now. So the, one of the most famous is the San Diego Zoo's Frozen Zoo. Um, but there are biobanks of tissue and cell cultures um, all over the world. There's, uh, uh, I think there's the, Oh, Frozen Ark, which is a British-based uh, uh, biobanking system of multiple institutions. There's the Global Genomics um, Biobank, uh, which uh, has its epicenter at the Smithsonian. Um, there's a number. There's, there's thousands of tissue samples of species, of many different species that have been preserved, um, which with the right reproductive technologies are all potential resources to aid the recovery of those species if they ever become endangered in the future or for the endangered species start possibly helping them now um in in different ways hmm. I, I i really want to ask um you know you mentioned 
way back that you were uh, working in Australia for two years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, growing up in Australia, everyone learns about the Tasmanian tiger. And yeah. I, I think may, potentially in some small way, I feel about the Tasmanian tiger in, in some small measure like you do about the passenger pigeon. Because, I mean, the, both of them were killed in very senseless ways. Do you know? Do you know? What I, feel, the, I feel like the story of the Tasmanian tiger, or thylacine, if we're being yeah. very proper, um, is 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 even more tragic than that of the passenger pigeon. I mean, the passenger pigeon was being killed for a use; mm. it was being killed off to feed people. Um, there was a lot of kind of unnecessary avarice in what was going on, but it was it was a harvested food source. Whereas, you know, I know that the thylacine was was kind of wrongfully uh, accused of killing sheep. Yeah. And and then, you know, made an enemy of the government and and bounties put on it. I mean, it was just it was just systematically hunted down to to exterminate. Like the goal was to get rid of it. And I mean, there was still a price on its head when there were only a handful left. Yeah. I mean, and the, the saddest part is the fact that the Tasmanian government protected the thylacine the year it went extinct. <laughs> You know, I, I and, heard and, it was it was so bad that when I think it was Benjamin was the last one that was killed, yeah. they just threw its body on on the trash. Oh heap. yeah, well, well, Benjamin's death was actually complete neglect, and Benjamin wasn't even a boy; it was a girl. Really, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, Benjamin was a female, and she was the last thylacine anyone knew of. And yeah, the the, the keeper actually just didn't open up the door at night to her her sleeping quarters, and she died of hypothermia. Um, because she, you know, it was absolute neglect. And, and so the, the, the story of the Tasmanian tiger is, is immensely sad. And it's an animal that, you know, Tasmania is in this amazing position. A quarter of Tasmania's land is protected. Mm. That doesn't exist anywhere, like anywhere in the world. Like, like that level of, of protected land. Mm. Um, and, and what percentage you know, of the land is uh, completely wild? Oh, all, basically all of that protected land is wild. So like 25% of Tasmania is, is wilderness. Yeah, you can drive through it and hike through it and everything. But that, doesn't, that doesn't change it from being wilderness. No, no I mean, um, in, in addition to that 25%, how, how much do you, do you know? Oh, I don't know how much extra. I don't know how much is privately owned or, or, or whatnot. Um, but but Tasmania is actually in really great shape to possibly bring back something like the Tasmanian tiger. Um, I know I am actually, I'm actually friends with the, the man who sequenced its genome a couple of years ago. Okay. So, I mean, so they I mean, have that. They have that. Yeah. Um, and, but no one has ever really done the type of advanced reproductive technologies with marsupials that would be needed. I think they would actually be easier in marsupials than in placentals. What, why is um, that? Well, the amazing thing about, um, cloning is you get oocytes from a mother, you make the embryo, then you implant them. Um, in, in marsupials, well, what I should say is like, let's say we wanted to clone a giant, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll use cloning as an example, but even though we're talking about de-extinction, let's say that a, 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 a giant rat goes extinct, but somebody preserved its cells. And you implant the embryo into a surrogate mother from a smaller species, and she just can't carry it to term because mm -hmm. the embryo grows too big, right? I mean, so size is an issue. The Tasmanian tiger is much larger than every other living predatory marsupial, but all marsupials are born 
super teeny tiny. I see. So you can use the closest relative. And then relative. they go to a pouch. And once they've grown in the pouch so far, I mean, you can actually raise a marsupial in an artificial pouch. People mm -hmm. save, you know, like roadkill koalas and kangaroos, right? They check the pouch, put the baby into a pouch. They just bottle feed it through a hole and they grow up. So, I mean, I think you could use a numbat, which is the closest living relative, to produce embryos of thylacines. And you could use the pouch... That's the other thing. You can also swap pouches, right? People have done that. They've taken uh, embryos developing in one pouch of one species and swapped them to another in kangaroos and, and other macropods. So you could take it and then put it in a larger animal's pouch to get it to grow big enough or just raise it in an artificial pouch. Um, but the thing is, is it will take a lot. I mean, Tasmanian tiger is probably one of those species where we, we're a little ways away from dreaming about yet because you're... You look at a numbat or a Tasmanian devil, and there's so many differences between them and a thylacine. You have to basically morph their entire bodies into a coyote-like animal. And, you know, if you were dealing with a Tasmanian devil, you'd have to be changing its behavior to turn it into a predator. Dealing with a numbat, in either case, you're dealing with animals that you have to turn into pack animals. So there's a whole host of behavioral, physiological, and morphological changes to make. But then I maybe you just need impossible. to use multiple species. I mean, maybe you yeah. take some characteristics. Just from like the, the dodo bird, right? I mean, yeah, you, you, you would need to you know, maybe use the cells of the numbat, use a Tasmanian devil as a surrogate. And, and then, you know, um, you know and, and really it comes down to a scale, the scaling of gene editing. Is once we get to a, a, the ability to really make lots of changes, we can probably, you know, I, like I said, it's not impossible. It's going to be more challenging but in, in the long run, it's going to become something that's easier to do. And I think Australia could definitely recreate the thylacine and repopulate it. Would, but do we have a, I mean, with the passenger pigeon, you have 1500 uh, museum samples. Do, you, do we have anything close to that with the Tasmanian tiger? Well, technically, you only need one good sample to recreate an extinct species. Um, helps to have more than one. And in some cases, you do need at least one male and one female. But you just need really a handful of them. And there are actually many specimens of, of thylacine. There's, uh, I don't know if there's more than a hundred, but there's, there's definitely s several dozen skins. Um, there's a lot of bones you can get material from, and there are a few um, preserved in alcohol, which is where some of the first DNA fragments came from. And I should actually say that um, people were sequencing thylacine DNA in little bits back in the late 1990s, and that was actually the work that inspired me to think that de-extinction would be possible someday. The thylacine was, um, the reason I can, you know, can rattle off its story and talk about it a lot is it was one of my very early passions as well. Um, that it was, the thylacine was my gateway extinct species to learning about all the species that human beings have killed off. Um, and, and thinking about how we could try and bring them back. And so I, my passion for passenger pigeons, you know, actually, uh, um, and dodos and, and other birds, uh, uh, is, is all in thanks to being inspired by the thylacine. So I imagine if you were born in Australia, maybe this would, would be the project you're working on right now. Um, <laughs> probably I, there's a couple, just one, one or two more questions I wanted to ask, um, which should be fairly quick. Um, you know, global warming, bad. But on the other hand, permafrost is melting. And recently, we've been finding 
extraordinarily well-preserved carcasses of, you know, wolves and woolly mammoths and woolly rhinoceroses. What's the status there? Are we going to have, are we going to see dire wolves bought, bought back? <laughs> uh, those permafrost samples, they, they do give really good DNA. So it's, it's good to get genomes out of them. Um, you'll, you'll never clone from them. I mean, there are people trying, but it's, it's, it's the, you know, once an animal dies, like you, you have to flash freeze something to, to keep it good and, and add in cryo, like you add in like cryoprotectants to be able to keep cells alive. So even though those things have been frozen for thousands of years, they've been, they've been degrading the entire time. Um, but, but they've been degrade, degrading at a rate that's very much slower than something, you know, in a tropical area, right? So, so you get great DNA out of them. People can definitely get entire genomes of, dire wolves and cave lions and whatnot and there are people working on that we've actually got lots of genomes of extinct species that are that are in the works that are not published yet um and of course most of those species all have living relatives that could easily be surrogate mothers and do the gene editing for and there's there are you know the whole point of recreating the mammoth is actually to recreate its entire ecosystem that's a that's a climate change project and and people have already started doing that that's sergey zimov's work so there's going to be habitat to put back a lot of those species as well if at a global but this is the other thing is like if really russia canada europe the united states all agree and make a global effort that yes we do want to convert tundra to grasslands because it is a more beneficial ecosystem to the planet and you know make that effort concertedly you know you could have all kinds of ancient pleistocene animals back up north but and that really would be just, a tourist draw. I mean, that would be crazy. Yeah. The issue with them thawing out of the ground so fast as they are is actually the fact that, you know, the tundra is the largest land habitat in the world. And we're probably losing more of those than we're finding by orders of magnitude. So like for every great dire wolf head that's found coming out of a bank... There's probably a thousand of them rot, you know, thawing out somewhere else that then once exposed and left out in the summer heat, just rot like anything else. And then they're, then they're trash. So the climate change is actually probably, a, it, it is not a good thing for, for, for all of that stuff. It's, it's very, very bad. We're losing possibly even discoveries of species we didn't even know about. Mm. Um, you know, so, um, yeah. It's much better if it was just kept frozen and people just went out and looked for that stuff and found it and was and are able to work with it, you know, in a good state. Can I ask, um, on the ethical side of things, so <laughs> Neanderthals, we have 2% Neanderthal DNA, 1-2%. Is in, in the population of humans, is the do we know if the entire Neanderthal uh, genome is there or is it just parts of it. Oh, you, the guy you should talk to about that is in Europe would be Svante Pabo or or in the States would be Richard Green or Ed Green. They they've they do lots of studies of Neanderthal genomes. My I don't know the answer to that question, but my hunch would be that that the majority of the Neanderthal genome is gone. Like it's right. it's the two percent we have is 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 what's been left after thirty thousand years of what selection has worked with like like we keep what works for us there's a little bit of it that's random but we've really kept what's worked for us and and gotten rid of what doesn't so so uh yeah there's the majority of the 
the Neanderthal genome is extinct. So we don't need to worry about the ethical... We don't need to stumble over the ethical problem of perhaps bringing it back. You know, I don't think we need to... It's, 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 it's weird, right? It's, it's, a, it's one thing to talk about mammoths to restore an ecosystem. It's another to think about recreating a Neanderthal. Um, and because we know that they were human. Like, you know, we, we know elephants are sentient. Wildlife is sentient. But being human is a little bit more than just being sentient. You know, it's, it's a, a, a family of Asian elephants can raise a woolly mammoth and it will then grow up to, you know, be a woolly mammoth. Neanderthal raised by humans will be a Neanderthal raised by humans in human culture. It won't have Neanderthal culture. Culture is something that is not genetic. That's the thing is like with passenger pigeons, mammoths and other things, their behaviors are influenced by genetics. A lot of our behavior is influenced by genetics, but culture is not genetic. Mm -hmm. Culture is developed by human societies. And and so that culture of a Neanderthal would never be there again. And you'd basically have Neanderthals growing up in a world that, sad to say, doesn't even treat all of its races mm. equally. So I feel like the we can get the human race to treat a de-extinct mammoth with nurturance and respect. You can't guarantee... Mm. It's, and, and this is really evident from what's been going on in the United States in the year 2020. You cannot guarantee that the human race is going to treat a, a, a newly born Neanderthal with, with dignity and respect and not hate. I, I was going to say that this was a good place to, to end, but it's a little bit too negative. So I want to, instead, what <laughs> I'm going to say is, just cut it out. No, well, instead, what I'm going to say is, um, just as the final thing, you know, what's the dream? Ima imagine maybe the end of your career or, or 30 years down the track or if everything goes your way you, you get all the funding you need where are we at what's what what's the thing you'll be well, proud I'm going of to paint you i'm going to paint you my, my vision for the world um because passenger pigeons to me they're they're just they're just one puzzle piece to a future in which the world is a better place my dream of when i'm 90 years old is that is that a lot of things have changed. My dream is that one that, that through, through the use of biotechnologies and cultural changes and changes in science and whatnot, that, that we as a, as a planet actually just start coming together as people, um, that, that, that we, we eventually become a species that doesn't cling to hatred and seeing differences, that more people understand their DNA and go, oh my God, I'm no different than anybody else. Um, right. And, and that's, I think the beauty of ge genetics, right. Is you can start to learn. Yeah. We all came from people in Africa a hundred thousand years ago and, and we all share relatives, right? Like I did my 23 and me and, and going through like people who share like 1% of my DNA, who could be my fifth cousins is like everybody on the planet. Right. So, you know, it, it's kind of hard to, to, I feel to continue hating people when you know that they're family. Um, and I want us to come together to face climate change, to face the world and to embrace the initiatives by the UN that we do actually restore the majority of this planet to wilderness. I think what we need to do is 
We need to take agriculture, the way we do agriculture, and urbanize it. And I don't mean like, oh, grow food in your gardens. No, I mean we need to build skyscrapers that are farm fields, where every feet level of that skyscraper is a farm field, an orchard, where farmers and people can actually work in, in a giant community the size of New York City that is growing food. I've done some calculations, and 10, 10 agricultural metropolises the size of New York City would replace all of the croplands in the United States. And that's 1%. That would make 99% of our land freed up for things like um, pastoral grazing for different types of agriculture in which you can have more wildlife in one unit or complete restoration to wilderness. I want to see that happen to where we work with landowners and whatnot and connect corridors, build land bridges over highways and underpasses to where species can now move freely to work with, to, to go where they need to with climate change. You know, basically, I want a future in which human beings, we have more than 50% of the entire world is no longer humanization, but is wilderness again. Places where we can go and experience, you know, what we experience in national parks. I want that tenfold. And I want people to appreciate kind of a culture that comes around that. And when they go out to those wilderness places in 90 years having eating their GMO crops from their agro towers that is literally farm to table um, no matter where you're at. Um, you know, I hope that stumbling across the Appalachian Mountains, someone leans up against a transgenic chestnut tree that is a hundred feet tall and a flock of a million passenger pigeons goes overhead. And I, I hope they... They don't see genetic engineering and they don't see gene editing, but they see awe and wonder at the power of the world around them and what human beings can do to be a force of good rather than destruction.